bow our heads in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, uh, be glorified in our lives, uh, in the sharing of your word. Uh, Anoint uh, my lips and uh, open our hearts and minds and ears to all you have for us to hear in your word. Might your spirit wonderfully fill us. Uh, Might uh, your truth wonderfully shine. Uh, Might you be glorified. And we thank you, Lord, for all your purposing in us and through us, for your kingdom, for your glory, uh, and for our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, Let me uh, start with a few opening remarks, and then I will uh, read the verses there. The book of Jonah is a book that, along with the book of Ruth, uh, because it's compact and it's a powerful message and has a number of translation challenges, is often used uh, in training future Bible translators in their initial workshop. And on our Wycliffe table, you'll see a little booklet of Jonah that was done in one of the workshops we were involved with back in 1995. Uh, Because we had these Jonah workshops a lot, uh, my wife got me a tie that had fish on it, Uh, like uh, the great fish from the book of Jonah in chapter 2. Uh, but that said, the central message of Jonah often gets swallowed by that great fish in our minds. There's actually uh, some very uh, intriguing things about it. The book of Jonah is more about the prophet than the prophet's prophecy. Uh, the book of Jonah centers on the prophet himself and his response to God's call, and then that's contrasted with the response of the sailors in the city, the citizens of Nineveh. But the book of Jonah demonstrates God's concern for the nations. You saw in our opening text uh, about the nations. Uh, And uh, the book also shows God's grace towards those who repent and look to him. They look to him and they change their behavior. He, he shows them grace. And thirdly, the book of Jonah asks Jonah and us, will we share God's heart completely? Or are there certain things that we'll wall off and say, that's, that's not up for negotiation. That's still mine. Are there things that we keep from God uh, when he's calling us to share his heart completely. Speaking about the nations, in the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 12, God's talking to Abraham and making a promise to him. And he says, I'll make you into a great nation and I'll bless you. And he continues and he closes by saying, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God's not just concerned with Abraham and his chosen people, the Jews. 
He's concerned about all those who bear his image. The nations are frequently referred to in the Bible, and though God judges the nations for their wickedness, he also reaches out in grace, and the nations will ultimately give praise to God. We can look in the last book of the Bible, Revelations, chapter 7, and it says, After this I looked. This is the Apostle John in the middle of a vision. He says, And there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes and holding palm branches, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the nations, they're assembled before God's throne and they're declaring salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The nations will bring glory to God. So from beginning to end, the Bible testifies to God's interest in the nations, starting with Israel. And where does Jonah fit into this? Let's, uh, I'll continue my, my opening and then we'll get to our, uh, our scripture reading. Jonah lived in the period of the divided kingdom about 150 years after King Solomon. So the southern kingdom of Judah and the northern kingdom of Israel had split apart, had two different kings ruling them. And uh, though the ten northern tribes were led in idolatry by a succession of evil kings, God showed them mercy. Jonah would have been familiar with his prophetic predecessors, Elijah and Elisha. We read about them in 1 Kings uh, and 2 Kings. But Jonah would have known them, and Elijah had a ministry calling the nation back to God. But at one point, God took Elijah out to minister in the region of Sidon, which was Canaanite, Phoenician territory, and he ministered to the widow of Zarephath. Jesus brings this up later in the Gospels. Uh, Elijah's successor, Elisha, also is taking you know, God's word to the nation of, of Israel and, and Judah, but Naaman the Syrian general comes to him because he's heard from his slave girl, a little Israelite who'd actually been captured by his army's raids against Israel. Naaman had heard that his leprosy could be healed. And Elisha gave Naaman the words he needed to go and bathe in the Jordan River seven times which he did, and he was healed, and he became a follower. Now, Jonah himself was used by God, and it's recorded in 2 Kings 14, and it says that Jeroboam, now this is a wicked king in northern Israel, Jeroboam restored the boundary of Israel from Labohanath, that's in the north, to the Sea of the Arabah, in the south, according to the word 
of the Lord, the God of Israel, that he'd spoken through his servant, Jonah, son of Amittai. So Jonah's not just, not just his book, but he's recorded in 2 Kings. He had this prophecy that Israel's borders would be restored, and they were, despite being led by a wicked king. It says, For the Lord saw the affliction of the Israelites, both slave and free, was very bitter. There was no one to help Israel. And since the Lord had said he would not blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, he delivered them by the hand of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash. So Jonah has witnessed God's grace towards Israel, even under a wicked king. And he's seen God's grace towards foreigners, would of Zarephath and Naaman the Syrian. So God extends his grace even to his disobedient people under the rule of evil Jeroboam, Jonah knew how expansive God's grace could be. We'll get to our text now. The book opens with, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. God cannot ignore evil. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He's headed down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. I'm going to go back to my comments and return to that passage. Uh, The Lord then sent a great wind on the sea since Jonah was out in this boat. And such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. This was very serious. But Jonah had gone below the deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. There's this horrible storm. Well, God called to Jonah, and Jonah without a word fled away down to the port city of Joppa. Probably he'd been in Jerusalem because he was fleeing the Lord's presence, and that would have been at the temple. So he goes down to Joppa. Then he goes down to the ship, down into its hull, and then down into a deep sleep. Fleeing God's call takes us down, down, down. Some commentators think that Jonah didn't simply have to pay a fare to get on this ship He may have had to charter the boat. Disobedience can cost a lot. God, however, does not leave Jonah to his own plans. The pagan sailors take action, crying out to whatever gods they could. Jonah sleeps unresponsive. The captain went to Jonah and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call in your God. Maybe he'll take notice of us so we will not perish. So again, the captain calls on Jonah to call upon his God as Jonah does nothing. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let's cast lots to find out who's responsible for this calamity. And they cast lots and the lot fell to Jonah. And so they asked him, tell us who's responsible for all this trouble that's come upon us. 
What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What's your country? What people are you from? And Jonah answered, I'm a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Notice how there's nothing left out. There's the heavens, there's the sea, there's the dry land. I worship the God who made them all. This terrified the sailors, and they said, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he'd already told them. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, and so they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down? He said, pick me up and throw me into the sea, and it'll become calm. I know it's my fault that this storm has come upon you, this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they couldn't because the sea got even rougher and wilder than before. And then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this the men feared greatly. They feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. As we step back from the text, we see that the prophet of Israel is content to be thrown into the sea, presumably to perish, while avoiding God's call to Nineveh. While it's the pagan sailors who call out to the Lord God, fearful of taking Jonah's life, and when the sea becomes calm, they feared the Lord and they sacrificed to him, and they made vows. The Lord uses even Jonah's disobedience to call people to himself. And the Lord responds to the sailors, please, and calms the storm. Back to our three points. God's concern for the nations, even beyond Israel. God's grace to those who repent and look to him. God it's a desire for his followers to share his heart completely. So we get into Jonah's prayer. Uh, now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and nights. And from inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God, and I'll read some of this, but not all of it. And he said, in my deep distress, I called out to the Lord. This is chapter 2 of Jonah. In my deep distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. What I what vowed, I'll make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. So Jonah has again turned his eyes to the Lord, and the Lord answers him. Jonah feels his life ebbing away and thinks of the Lord in his temple. And Jonah says he'll, he'll obey. So Jonah continues, the, word of the, uh, the book of Jonah continues, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. 
Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God, a fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? You sort of hear the voice of the sea captain here. Another person who doesn't really know God, but they're just wondering, maybe God will have mercy on me. So he says, who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and didn't bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Jonah's obedience brings a turning to the Lord unlike any other recorded in the Bible that I can find. 120,000 people at least repent through what may have been a single day of preaching. The pagans, even the pagan king, responds to the message quickly, humbly, completely, thinking, who knows, God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. It was a step of faith. And God responded, Nineveh was overturned, but not in judgment, but rather in a repentance of word and deed. It's worth noting yeah, that neither the captain nor the king of Nineveh really knew God well, but they, they reached out in hope that perhaps God would relent in, in the face of their humility and their change of behavior. God does. Back to our three points. God's concern for the nations even beyond Israel. That includes us. We are nations beyond Israel, unless we're of Jewish heritage. God's grace towards those who repent and look to him, and God desires for his followers to share his heart completely. How's Jonah doing on point number three, sharing God's heart completely? We read, but to Jonah, and he's responding to this massive repentance by the city of Nineveh, where they even clothed the animals in sackcloth. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That's what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? Just as the Lord called Jonah to preach 
to Nineveh, he may call us to do things in his name for his kingdom. It may be easy, it may be hard, it may be near, it may be far, but it's obedience. But when God is working on our heart, he may ask a quiet question. His question to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? In 1 Kings 18, when Elijah had defeated the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel and Queen Jezebel threatened to kill him within a day, Elijah fled. But he fled toward the mountain of God, and God met him with a still, small voice. Unlike Elijah, Jonah ran away from God's presence, but God still met with Jonah with a prompting question. Twice the pagans have chosen God and become insiders. Jonah the prophet is on the outside. He's outside the boat when the sailors are sacrificing and making vows to God. He's outside the city waiting for its destruction when the people inside have repented. Jonah did not trust God's forgiveness when it came to an enemy people. And in fact, it was the Ninevites in the Assyrian Empire that God used against the northern ten tribes to judge their persistent wickedness. They'd set up idols in the north and the south so people wouldn't go to the temple in Jerusalem to worship God. God used this empire to judge the ten tribes through a series of attacks and exiles that went from 740 B.C. to 722 B.C. when they were all carried away. Nahum, who appears a few books later in the Old Testament, is the prophet God sends against Nineveh several generations later when they have returned to their wickedness. And that time they didn't turn and they were judged. And Nineveh and the Assyrian Empire fell themselves to the Persians, the Babylonians, and the Medes in 612 B.C. They didn't. They didn't repent the second time, and they were carried away. But Jonah, I think, fearing God forgiving Israel's great enemy, is very angry at the success of his own preaching. Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. We're in chapter 4 now. There he made himself a shelter, sat in the shade, waited to see what would happen to the city. And then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade over his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy at the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided, note that word provided, at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint, and he wanted to die. And he said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said. And I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it, or make it grow, it sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, 
in which there are more than 120,000 people who can't tell their right hand from their left and also many animals? Just as God earlier provided a great fish to get Jonah back on track, we see God providing in succession a vine, a worm, and a scorching east wind. Each one is God's grace to move Jonah towards God's heart. It seems so obvious that Jonah's love of the plant and sorrow at its loss overnight is no comparison for God's concern for the great city of Nineveh and over 120,000 people. God leaves Jonah with a question that remains unanswered in the book. And so the question comes to us also. Like the elder brother of the prodigal son, who in Luke 15 wonders why the prodigal son has gotten forgiven. Was that right? Do we delight when those who may be even our enemies find God's truth and God's forgiveness and God's blessing? Can we see God's designs are bigger than what we can see when something doesn't make sense to us? God may be weaving something together that we we just can't see, but he calls us to trust. Following Peter's denial three times, Jesus calls him three times to feed his sheep. And later, as recorded in Acts 10, Peter found himself in Joppa, just as Jonah did centuries earlier. God gave Peter a vision of unclean food and told him to rise and eat. And Peter resisted three times. But he saw the vision, and in response to another vision, the centurion Cornelius sent his servants to find Peter so that they could hear the good news. Unlike Jonah, Peter went willingly, a Jew, in outreach to a people he never imagined he'd minister to, these Gentiles. And later said, I now realize how true it is that God doesn't show favoritism but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what's right. Kevin Youngblood, in his commentary on Jonah, writes, those who have been scandalized by the inclusiveness of God's mercy and have fled from sharing that mercy can take heart from Jonah's and Peter's shared experience. Yahweh's a God of second chances, who patiently waits for his servants to embrace the call of his scandalous, inclusive mercy. In reading Jonah, I've realized that uh, God could have chosen a willing prophet to take his message to Nineveh. God could have said, go preach to Nineveh, and that prophet would have just gone. But God chose Jonah. Jonah knew God's grace and mercy so well, but he also feared God would forgive. Seems like God chose Jonah so that Jonah might know his heart more fully. Now we get to the notes that I wrote for this morning. What is our takeaway? 
God loves the nations. God responds. God wants us to share his heart for the lost. A few words for us here. In Jonah, who turned to God? The sailors, the Ninevites, pagans. Who responded to Jesus and loved much? Tax collectors, sinners, and some like Nicodemus. Some church people. uh, But a lot of tax collectors and sinners. If we want a response to the gospel, who should we approach? Everyone, but expect that those who admit the greatest need will end up loving Jesus most deeply. Why should people turn to Jesus? If you were to talk to your neighbor, if you're thinking about someone here in Princeville, what would you tell them? Why should people turn to Jesus? Because God the Father said, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. That was spoken of the transfiguration, Mark 9, 7. And because Jesus said, I'm the way and the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. If you or someone else thinks the world is a mess, and why doesn't God do something already? God did do something. He sent his son Jesus that our sins might be forgiven and we might come into right relationship with our Creator God, we dare not ignore such a great salvation, says the writer of Hebrews. If we think the world is a mess, and shouldn't God do something, He did. He sent Jesus. Do we or our neighbors have troubled marriages, or errant children, or addictions? or bondages, or fears, or sin in our lives. We do. Or it could be that we're selfish and self-sufficient, failing to put God at the center of our lives where he belongs, rather than, and instead having him where he belongs, maybe we put ourselves or something else in first place, which is essentially what an idol is. That's the first command. No gods before him. God gave us his word, the Bible, to meditate on every day. The basic principles of life are found there and guide us. God sent his spirit, and his spirit's available to guide us, to fill us, to comfort us, to equip us. And he helps us even in our own doubts and fears. Please be encouraged. Jesus promised that those who seek will find. Jesus said, I've come that they might have life and might have life to the full. He's talking. After a prophetic call like Jonah, you probably shouldn't go around with condemning words. But we can and should look for more good news where the word of God speaks truth to where truth isn't being followed or speaks grace to where grace needs to be known to where we may be stuck in shame 
or we may feel stuck in uncleanliness, speaks forgiveness, or we may be stuck in guilt for our neighbors. Let's share the good news, and may the love of Christ be evidence in our lives. May God guide us in his love.